glad you are here today. Uh, man, one of the pastors here, and I'm excited, uh, at least right now, uh, to walk through uh, the next part in our series through 1 Corinthians. But I love this time of year. It's starting to get a little bit cooler. Uh, the sun is starting to set a little bit earlier, which means I can finally go to bed earlier. Uh, I just love this time of year. Uh, but you know, we're only about six and a half weeks away from Thanksgiving and only about 10 weeks away from Christmas. And not to make you nervous, but I want to start there because I've been thinking, speaking of that, that everyone likes to receive gifts. So I want you to think about what's one of the best gifts uh, you have ever received. Now don't tell me, but just think about it. What is one of the best gifts that you've ever received? Received. Maybe it was an item that you really wanted, or maybe it's perhaps someone actually did something for you. About a year ago, uh, I had a propane leak at my house. I don't know much about it, but a gas leak under your house is not a good thing. Um, so, the gas company looked at it, you know, several thousand dollars, just new gas line, that, that's what you need to do. Well, I was sharing this with one of our friends. He's actually one of our elders at the White House campus, and he's like, hey, let me come and look at it. Well, seven and a half hours later, we find the problem, and it took $18 to fix. And man, what a gift. This guy would give his entire workday to come and help me find out what the problem was, and then we solved it. Or maybe it was a gift that changed the way you saw yourself. For me, I was 13 years old, living in northwest Arkansas. My mom and dad, my aunts and uncles got together and bought me a Savage 20 gauge. Now for me, that was such an important gift. I mean, it felt like I was really becoming a man. And I couldn't wait to put a hurt on the score of population of Northwest Arkansas. And that's exactly what I did. But in that gift, I mean, it made me feel like I was becoming someone different. Well, there's gifts that we receive. But what about maybe a great gift that you gave? Now, I was newly married. I was trying to remember about a year or two, and I had the great idea. I'm going to go out and surprise my wife, and I'm going to buy her some clothes. So I did. Wrapped them up, presented to her. Man, I'm excited. Man, I thought about her. You know, newly married. I know everything there is. She opens up the gift, and if you could have seen the look on her face, I knew at that moment there was no way she was ever going to wear those clothes out in public. But you live and you learn. She tried to hide her surprise, but she couldn't. But we have given gifts, we've received gifts. But you know, it's that time that you pick that perfect gift. And instead of disappointment or whatever this is, that you give something and all of a sudden you can see the excitement or the thankfulness, the appreciation and someone that you know you have thought about them, you know them, you've made a sacrifice, and you have given them the perfect gift. Well, today, this is what I want us to see, that we are going to see the best gift you can give your spouse, even better than clothes, the best gift you could give your family, your children, and the best gift you could ever give your church. That's what we're going to see. So today I want to invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But I need to warn you, uh, Bethel, in our pulpit ministry, the way we do this, we typically pick a book and we walk through it. I tell you, that's a great thing because one thing it does 
it presents everything in context. And we believe that, that we don't want to take anything out of context. We want the original meaning to be what we originally talk about. And it also helps us to, the good news is that we don't miss anything. That we're going to walk through this entire book together. But on the downside, there are things that we might be tempted to pass over, and we don't. Well, this is one of those this morning. I can promise you this. What we're about to look at, you've never heard at a wedding. You've never heard at a graduation. You've never heard at a baby dedication. And if you ever have a pastor or a preacher that's coming to speak and say, oh, you just pick the topic or the passage you want to talk about. This isn't one they're ever going to pick. Because today we're going to be talking about what we often call church discipline. I know you're excited. You can't wait. But that's what it is. We're going to talk about church discipline. I know for me, it typically stirs maybe negative emotions that can even make us uncomfortable. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One, maybe we don't understand what the scriptures really say about it. Another option might be that it brings up these negative emotions or feelings or fears. It's we've never seen it done. Or if we have, we've seen it done poorly. Well, there's also our own sins that we have to deal with. I think with dealing with church discipline, it, it can feel like or it could come across as being judgmental or even legalistic. And as church leaders, I think sometimes we could shy away from this because we think, well, if we really do this, it's going to hinder the growth of our church. But despite our feelings or our insecurities or even our fears, this is a very important topic for the church. So what, what, how would we define it? What is church discipline? Well, there's several ways we could talk about it. I think one is the process of correcting sin in the life of an individual or a congregation. It's the church's act of confronting someone's sin and calling them to repent. I think we could say it's the appropriate steps to reclaim a sinner of the church and ultimately to the Lord. But no matter how we might define it, no matter whatever the process might be, the goal should always be this. In every form and fashion of church discipline, the goal should always be restoration. That should always be the goal. And if it's not, then we're doing it wrong. In fact, here's what a few church leaders had to say, and this was sobering, about church discipline. John Dagg says it this way. When discipline leaves the local church, Christ goes with it. Charles Laney says, The church that neglects to confront and correct its members lovingly is not being kind or forgiving or gracious. Such a church is really hindering the Lord's work in the advance of the gospel. And we're going to see that today. Robert Saucy says, Church discipline in all its forms was given by the head of the church for the health and the welfare of the body to avoid its practice when necessary for the sake of reputation or, or what is really a false unity can only lead to a sick and weak church life. And lastly, Daniel Aiken says, by neglecting church discipline, a church endangers not only its spiritual effectiveness, but also its very existence. Just ask Thyatira. 
So I'm thankful this morning, as I've been studying this over the last couple of weeks, to be a part of a church that does not neglect this, that believes the importance in the aspect of church life that we must deal and be a part of church discipline. But remember, it is always for restoration. So this morning, let's see what Paul has for us in this topic. But know this, it begins with a very difficult situation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is how it reads. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So we have a man at this point has been unnamed, and he is having a very inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. And I'm going to leave that there. You can understand what he's talking about. He's in a very inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. Now we know from Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy chapter 22, that this was prohibited in the Old Testament for many reasons. But notice what Paul says about this sexual sin that this man is known to be in. He says, it is even not tolerated among the pagans. So the Romans or the Gentiles, it was even against their customs. It was against their laws. In fact, you could be uh, excluded from a Roman colony for participating in this. So as bad as this man's behavior is, Paul quickly turns his attention somewhere else. In fact, from this point on, his focus really isn't on this man and his sin. It's on the church's response. Because look at verse 2. So this man is known to be involved in this. But notice what he then says in verse 2. You, the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So notice who Paul references. He says you. It's the plural. He's not talking to one specific person. He is talking to the entire church that this is your problem. You, I'm calling you out because you are a part of the church. And he says, you're being arrogant. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little strange to describe a church as being arrogant when he's talking about this man's sexual immorality. But I once heard this, be careful that you do not act more important than you actually are. And this is what is happening in the Corinthian church. As Paul is saying, Corinthians, you are acting as if you are exempt from obeying God's commands. You're being arrogant. You're acting as if you're above the law. You're acting like the laws of God don't apply to you. And you really don't need to follow them. In fact, he says, instead, you should be mourning over this man's sin. And the effects that it can have on the church. In fact, they weren't bothered by it at all when they should be grieving over it. And then Paul says, this man should be removed. Meaning he should be excluded from fellowship in this Corinthian church. Now, for us, I think this is hard for us to fully grasp. But in this time that Paul is writing, the Corinthian church was all that there was. There wasn't a church just across the street that people could just simply move to. This was the Christian community in Corinth. 
So when people responded to the gospel, when they were called to that and then responded in repentance, they became a part of that Christian fellowship, that church, that ecclesia, which meant they had to leave another community to be a part of this. That they were abandoning all that they had to be a part of this unique group of people that had been called out by God to be his example. So when this church is now told to exclude him from fellowship, what it was doing, it was creating and making this man a nomad. He now had no family. He had no community. He was excluded from their fellowship, making him a nomad. Well, Paul's then going to describe it in more detail. He then describes it about how they should do this. Now, I know it seems drastic, but notice the purpose. In verse 3, he goes on to say, For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. Paul is saying, I am with you in this. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So when you are assembled, so church, you come together in the name of the Lord Jesus. And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. He says, here's what you do, Corinthians. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now that seems drastic. Now there's a lot of uh, talk about what he means here. They are to turn this man out. They are to exclude him from fellowship and they are to turn him over to Satan. Now that seems drastic, but it reminds us of how important this really is. In fact, his exclusion from the church was to express exclusion from God's protection. In fact, we see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, one of the biggest judgments God can give us where he says that he will turn us over to the desires of our heart. And so the church is to be this symbol and this expression of God's protection. And if we rebel against that, they are to be turned over to that. But notice the last part of verse 5. Why should he be turned over to Satan excluded from fellowship? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That sometimes when someone is caught in such a drastic sin that refuses to repent or to hear correction, the best thing is to turn them over to that so that God can deal with them even if it's through the powers of Satan so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now a couple of things to note here. A couple of things important. First is this. Paul is not saying that anyone found in a persistent sin should immediately be excluded from fellowship. The important thing to remember is that there was already a plan laid out. Now I assume that Paul is going to this drastic measure because they're either refusing to do those things or they've done these things and they haven't worked. So what is the plan? Well, the first place we see it is in Matthew 18. And I'm thankful to be a part of a church that follows this. In verse 15, it says, if a brother sins against you, you go to him and bring his fault. Tell him between you and him alone. You go to them in private. Hey, you've done this or you are doing this. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you 
so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If they don't listen, or I don't listen to them, or they don't listen to me, I bring someone with me, and we talk about that, or they bring them to me. If he refuses to listen to them, you tell the church. If then he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. Or in Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it's either this church has already done these things, and it hasn't worked, or they're refusing to do them. So Paul must move to drastic measures. But here's the second thing. Paul hopes in turning this man over to Satan will ultimately be the salvation of his soul. Because once again, the goal of church discipline is always restoration. It should be every single time. Well, then what Paul does, he turns his attention back to this church's error in ignoring this man's sin. So he's already told them, you're being arrogant. But in verse 6, he says, you're boasting It's not good. Now, that's a weird one to me. I mean, it sounds like he's saying this church is going around and boasting about this man's sin. That they're celebrating it in some form or fashion. But I don't think that's exactly what it's meant. I think what he's saying, when you are being arrogant, they're not going around celebrating, but in their refusal to confront it, their refusal to address it, it's as if they're saying, we are above God's law. In fact, I think there's a lot more actually going on here. Here's what I think is happening. I think they have fallen into the idea of what's called cheap grace. That Paul deals with in Romans 6, he deals with in Romans 3, that they're believing and they're saying, well, if we are really in Christ, if nothing can change that, then it really doesn't matter what we do in the here and now. Jesus is going to be coming back. Why do we have to worry about what we're doing now if we are already in Christ? They're believing this. If God's grace is so grace is so good, then let's get to continue sinning so that God's grace abounds more and more from Romans 6. But Paul then reminds them and us about some important aspects of sin. He goes on in that verse to say, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That a little bit of yeast in a thing of dough will affect the entire loaf. Here's what it reminds me, that our behavior, my behavior, as a husband, as a dad, as a neighbor, as a pastor, that our behavior, especially our sinful behavior, affects more than just us. It affects everyone around us. Meaning there is no such thing as a private sin that eventually that sin is going to affect someone else. And Paul is saying a small sickness, or even if you think a small sin, can eventually grow to kill the entire body. It could be a marriage, it could be a job, it could be a family, and even a church. That there is no such thing as a private sin, it will some way and somehow affect others. So because of this man's actions, and then I believe because of this church's ineffectiveness, 
Paul reminds them of an important truth. He's trying to bring them back to who they really are. In verse 7, what does he tell them to do? You cleanse out the old leaven. But he's not talking about this man at this point. That you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is turning his attention from this man to those in the church. And in these verses, Paul has all the ingredients for his doctrines of justification and sanctification. As believers in Christ, he says, the moment you believed, you are justified. That you are declared righteous before God. And he's right. Nothing can change that. He says, you are unleavened. You have been declared righteous before God when you put your trace and faith in Jesus Christ. You're unleavened now. But then he goes on to say, But there's something you do. You continue to take out the leaven. Well, if we're already in leaven, then why do we need to take out the leaven? Because he's talking about two different things. He's talking about when you are in leaven, you are justified, you are righteous before God. But then we live in this world. He's talking about their life of sanctification, of progressively becoming more righteous in our daily experiences as we gradually are renewed and conformed to the image of Christ. So when Paul tells the Corinthians, you are in fact unleavened, he is absolutely right. He says you are pure, you are clean, you're legally righteous before God. And at the same time, he urges them to clean out the old leaven so that they become a new lump. He's referring to them progressively becoming unleavened. It's their practical transformation towards that spiritual reality. And here's how I would say it. Paul is saying to them, you need to become as you are beheld. You need to become as God already sees you. Yes, you are already righteous. That is how God sees you. Now become that now. Well, he then clears up a misunderstanding. It's like, okay, you're talking about this, Paul. And all of a sudden, it seems like he switches gears. Because look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. So he's talking about the letter that we actually don't have. There was a previous letter that Paul wrote them. And notice what he says, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world Or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So here's what happened. Paul wrote them in this previous letter. He told them not to associate with the sexual immoral. With the greedy, with the swindlers, with the idolaters. And they heard that and they said, okay Paul, that's what we're going to do. We won't associate with anyone that is doing those things. But what they missed is Paul wasn't talking about those outside the church. 
They were trying to separate themselves and isolate themselves from the world because they were the greedy, they were idolaters, they were the swindlers. We're not going to associate with them. We are going to create a barrier around us and we are going to live secluded lives from the world. And that's what they were trying to do. And Paul says, you misunderstood me. So he clears it up in verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. See, he's telling them, I wasn't talking about those out in the world. I was talking about those inside the church. Those that are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolaters or revealers or drunkards or swindlers. That you're not even to eat with such a one. Now, Paul had wrote to them and they misunderstood. Paul said, don't associate with those that are doing those things. But they thought he was talking about those out in the world. And Paul says, no, I'm talking about those inside the church. In fact, Carl Laney says it this way. And I think he's right. He says, evangelism ministers to those outside the church that are held in the bondage of sin. Discipleship, it ministers to those within the church who are in the bondage of sin. So see, they took Paul's meaning to separate from the world. And Paul's saying, that's not at all what I was saying. In fact, if you had to do that, you'd have to leave the world. You're to be in the world so that you can actively love your neighbor and you can share the gospel and you can be examples of Christ. Yes, you were supposed to associate with them. Paul is saying, you must spend time with those who do not know Christ so that you can be examples of Christ to them. Well, Paul then makes his last point. He says, not only were they trying to separate themselves from the world, because often when we do that, when we try to separate ourselves from a certain group of people and isolate ourselves from them, what typically happens is what we see in verse 12 and 13. For what, I have, done, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says, believers, it is not our job to judge those and cast judgment on those outside the church. Inside the church, we are to hold each other accountable and confront when needed to and build a relationship so that can happen. But those outside the church, that is not our job to judge them. And man, in today's day and time, this is such a valuable reminder for us that we need to be careful that we are not expecting unbelievers to act and conduct themselves as believers. We have to be real careful of that. No matter who the person might be or what office they might hold or what job they might have or where they might live, we have to be careful that we are not holding unbelievers to the standard of living as believers because you know why? They can't. Believers have a hard enough time. We cannot expect unbelievers to act as believers. We cannot expect people to be controlled by the Holy Spirit when they don't even have him. Paul reminds us it is God's job to judge them, not ours. So let me conclude with this. Church discipline, it comes in so many forms and fashions. There's all kinds of ways this happens. 
fact, I think of it a lot like an iceberg. And you see an iceberg and you can see what's above the surface. And if Paul is talking about exclusion from community, he's talking about only what you can see. But there's all these things that happen beneath the water. So it comes in many forms and fashions. But what we're seeing here is Paul is talking about the last resort. We follow Galatians 6. We follow Matthew 18. We pray that those work. And the goal is always restoration. But if it ever comes to the point, Paul says the best thing we can do is to exclude them so that God can deal with them, hopefully bringing them to complete restoration. So I'm thankful to be a part of a church that takes this seriously. And as a a pastor and an elder, man, I've had to deal with this on several situations. I think for me, the sad thing is a lot of times in our day and time, you never get the chance. People just go somewhere else. They never work through the restoration. But I'm thankful that Bethel approaches it and believes the purpose of church discipline is always restoration. So I want to leave you with three things that I took away from studying this last week that I want to take with me. Here's the first one. The best form of correction always happens in community. It's sad to me that this man, maybe he refused, I don't know, I don't know all the details, but did he have someone in his life that he trusted, that trusted him, that would come to him and say, hey, we need to talk about this. This isn't right. God has a better plan for you. But the best form of correction always happens in community. Meaning this, do I have someone in my life? Do you have someone in your life that you have given permission to? Someone that you trust to speak truth into your life even when you know you don't want to hear it? I know I have that. I've got a friend that I've told, hey, I need you to help me watch over my life. Because the best form of correction always happens in community. Did you have that person, that someone that trusts you enough and you trust them enough that you can say, hey, I need you and I give you permission to speak truth into my life. The second thing I took away from this passage, as a church, we must always be inviting. Always be inviting to anyone and everyone At the same time, be careful not to be conforming. Man, we want to invite and we want to be for everyone. But we have to be careful in that. But the third one. We hold those inside the church to follow Christ. Not those outside. That is not our job. We cannot hold people to the standard of following Christ when they do not know him. That is God's job. So lastly, I want to circle back to what really is the best gift you could ever give? You know, the best gift I could ever give my spouse, the best gift I could ever give my children, the best gift I could ever give those that I work with here at Bethel, and the best gift I could ever give my church is this. It's my holiness. That's the best thing I could ever give anyone around me is my holiness, my sanctification, my progressively becoming more like Christ. That is absolutely the best thing I could ever give someone. I believe it happens by examining my own heart, my own motives. 
It happens by being involved in a Christian community that I can trust, that knows they have my best interest in mind. Because I believe this, the biggest threat to my marriage, the biggest threat to my family, the biggest threat to this church is not some force or someone out there. The biggest threat to them is my own sinfulness. And so what I read and what I take away from this difficult passage is the best thing I could ever give those that I love, including you, is my own personal holiness. So church, will you pray with me? Father, I want to be honest, this has been a very convicting passage. And so I'm thankful for that. Lord, it's easy for me to get caught in doing all the things I need to be doing and striving for this and to that. But to be able to have several moments this week to pause and to stop and to reflect on how important this issue is. It's sad to see a situation get to this point. If this man had only stopped and reflected, if there had only been someone that could come and that he trusted that he could hear, or for a church that had taken this seriously, it never would have gotten to this point. So Father, I pray that you would be with us this week as we think about and we reflect upon your word. Lord, I believe that the best gift we could ever give anyone is our own personal holiness. And a church that takes that seriously will be a powerful force for Christ in a lost world. So Father, would you continue to protect me protect my family, protect our church, and that we would watch over ourselves knowing that the best gift we could ever give is our own personal holiness. Lord, I ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of your spirit. Amen. Church, will you stand with me? I thank you for being here this morning. And don't forget, Wednesday Word will be coming up. It's a great place on Wednesday nights to get plugged in, to continue to meet different folks. They'll have a meal each and every week that you can sign up for online. So our benediction this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You are dismissed. Go in peace.